0: I am Aswin Punathambekar, the Director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication. This is Jing Wang, the Senior Research Manager at CARG. Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary issues. And welcome to the podcast, Global Media and Communication. I'm your host for today. My name is Mariela Morales, and I'm a graduate fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication. Today, our guest is Larissa Kingston-Mann. Uh, Dr. Mann is the author of Root Citizenship, Jamaican Popular Music, Copyright, and the Reverberations of Colonial Power. It was published earlier this year, 2022, by the University of North Carolina Press, Chapel Hill. Welcome, Dr. Mann. Thank you so much for having me. And would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Uh, so I'm currently
1: an assistant professor of media studies and production at Temple University. Uh, I've been there for about six years. Uh, I have a PhD in jurisprudence and social policy from mm-hmm. UC Berkeley Law School and a master's in economic history from the London School of Economics. Uh, and A million years ago, I did my bachelor's in history at (laughs) Oberlin College, Uh, and I'm the daughter of two working-class academics. My mother was a professor at UMass Boston. Mm -hmm. My father taught at Bunker Hill Community College, and uh, I've also been a practicing
0: and touring DJ for about 27 years uh, right, the resume. All of those things sort of mm-hmm. feed into the book. So. Yes, um, and uh, very interdisciplinary. And mm-hmm. you ended up, after all of that trajectory, being a comms scholar. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, um, in terms of like this book, your genealogy, how do you arrive to the subject of the book? Uh, what led you to it? How you ended up like turning it into a com book? If we, well, it is more than a comp book, and I mm-hmm. feel that different. I feel that different audiences can um, use it. Definitely, law scholars can uh, be very beneficial mm-hmm. in terms of like copyright and trying to understand it, uh, what things assumes uh, and what type of worlds understands as given. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you can talk a little bit more about how do you arrive to your topic and why do you? How do you ended up writing the book?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. So. Um, the genealogy is quite funny, it's quite literal in a way, because uh, my mother was a historian of enclosure movements and mm-hmm. peasant land rights uh, and privatization of common lands, and my father was an ethnomusicologist, and there's a way to look at this book as being about the enclosure of music, so in a way it completely en- uh, embodies things that I grew up hearing about, uh, but I didn't. I wasn't thinking of that at the time, uh, which is another kind of amazing thing about doing research over long periods of time.
0: And they, uh, the research was also in Jamaica?
1: No, my mother wrote about a peasant uh, revolution in in Russia in the pre-Soviet mm-hmm. era, but a lot about um, people owning land in common mm-hmm. and people redrawing the rules of property from above, supposedly in the interests of economics, mm-hmm. but in fact in the interest of consolidating power and taking it away from uh, uh, everyday people. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, it was. A, I actually draw a lot on that. Um, which is even before I was a, a scholar, like the yeah. things we talked about at the dinner table, because that's the kind of things we talked about <laughs> <laughs> at the dinner that's
0: table. That's when you're the kid of scholars. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, so that, but that, that, those interests were always sort of in, in me, or mm-hmm. for many, many years. And then, basically, uh, after I finished my undergrad, I was doing, I was getting involved in music mm-hmm. and not sure what I should do left next. And I thought maybe I would try doing a master's degree to see if I was interested in this whole grad graduate school experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was way back now in 1999. Uh, and I had to think of a research topic for my economic history degree. So I mm-hmm. did economic history at um, the London School of Economics. Um, and I had been thinking about enclosure movements in land. And then I read this really great um, Article called The Second Enclosure Movement, Mm. uh, which was by Jamie Love, I believe, and it was basically about the consolidation of intellectual property law in the late 90s under the IMF and World Bank Mm. sort of Washington Consensus. Uh, And he draws a really explicit parallel to these enclosure movements, again, that I actually knew a lot about from my family. And I was like, this is fascinating. And I already had started to DJ at that time. And I was familiar with Jamaican music and I was like, I wonder if Jamaica would be an interesting example of any of this. And I went to look and it was very interesting because even though the World Bank and the International Monetary mm-hmm. Fund were going around to every developing nation mm-hmm. and saying, you should all redraw your copyright laws to look exactly the same and yeah. to look like this. Um, and they made this really, to my mind, very funny coming from a hist- being a historian and trained yeah. by historians or raised by historians this idea that if you don't have this particular copyright system, your industry will not develop, which is also totally a historical because no current industry had that when they were developing. (laughs) Yeah, precisely, you know, classic sort of Washington consensus thing. And so they made this argument also in Jamaica. They said, you know, as the IMF was busy destroying the Jamaican economy, there's a great film called life and debt, which talks about that more generally. Um, uh, one of the things they also said was you need to rewrite your copyright law, otherwise your industry won't develop. And it's also a very weird thing to say to Jamaica in the 90s because Jamaica in the 90s had already created a global popular music, yeah. uh, you know, tidal wave of creativity that had been globally influential and was massively productive and you know it's a tiny island so so I was already like all right there's something
0: here that's happening that isn't what this model says they definitely didn't need any development of their music industry yeah I mean
1: there were things they needed but there were those are also things that pretty much any um, formerly colonized country needed which is enormous amounts of resources but I wasn't convinced that It was anything to do with the industry that was lacking and certainly wasn't creativity that was lacking and they all there's a whole incentives argument about copyright which doesn't make any sense um most of the time but anyway so i was like well maybe i'll write about that maybe i'll just look at the history of jamaican music and how it did develop how the industry did develop for my economic history program because it did that in the absence of copyright enforcement so it's sort of a natural counterfactual to this model um, and so that was way back in. Two, I wrote it in like 2000, and um, and that was really the seed of it. In fact, chapter there's. I have a history chapter that is still kind of you know echoing that early master's thesis I did. So, don't give up hope that something you wrote ages ago might not <laughs> pop up again.
0: <laughs> but, um, but I yeah. do hope so. Yeah, but I can always like reuse some of those papers.
1: Yeah, reading I think grad school. Yeah, I don't think you should um, that you were required to make explicit quote, productive use of everything you write, but I also think it's never wasted if you wrote it. Like, it's right. there somewhere. Uh, so so anyway, yeah, the, the master's thesis was really the heart of it. But then I was not really still sure about academia. My experience at London School of Economics wasn't terrible, but um, I wasn't really sure what it meant to go on to do a PhD. So I actually took more time and then got really involved in music and DJing. Uh, and... Uh, was also a street medic for like the massive demos that were happening back in the late 90s and early 2000s and was sort of thinking about activism and power, but ended up thinking that um, there was still something really interesting here about nightlife and culture and the way that these uh, cultural practices do a lot of the work that activism says Mm -hmm. it's doing, um, that is sort of building these spaces where people are relating in a different way Mm -hmm. to each other than what capitalism or colonialism would say and Mm -hmm. so when i decided to go back to do a phd i was interested in how copyright seemed to be a kind of interesting window into that because it's this set of rules about what you can and can't do with culture but it's a it's it sort of sets up the state uh, as this arbiter of cultural practice in a way that suggests that there's some kind of um Assumptions about what it means to be a sort of a good citizen, kind of built into this this you know uh, world of expression and creativity, which most people aren't, aren't necessarily thinking about. Formal citizenship, but yeah. I think they are thinking about belonging and control yeah. and connection and a lot of the things that states also say they're talent they're doing to us or for us with citizenship. So, anyway, I. I wasn't thinking specifically about citizenship at the time, but I was like, there's still all this stuff around copyright and what it's supposed to do and not do. And I think if I went to Jamaica and spent some time there, I might learn more about what people are doing that seems much more complex and interesting than what the law says. And also, if you listen to the lawyers, Jamaicans just sound like failures, which is so bizarre when you see how creative and how popular and influential the music is, like from a legal perspective perspective lawyers are always saying oh you know they're not following the rules it's mayhem it's anarchy it's you know it's it's you know there's all these like very condescending kind of language around how uncontrollable yeah. and, and unruly people are being and Who not are following. not
0: able to profit from their creations yeah usually because they're, they're not acting right yeah right
1: they're not behaving properly and they're not accounting for themselves properly and keeping good records and all this kind of thing and so i just part of me was just like wow it takes a really strong ideology to look at this like incredibly complex and rich and productive and creative and expressive and influential culture mm-hmm. and talk about it like that like it's this failure of like mayhem and unreli- you know like there's definitely some kind of cultural programming going on in the in the in the law to make to make people think about it that way and i mean i'm, I'm caricaturing a little because many people many copyright lawyers who work in jamaica do it because they love Jamaican music so it's not like they hate making music but it's still interesting that it's kind of impossible to talk about the music in a way that fully embraces its rich richness Mm -hmm. from a legal perspective (laughs) like the law doesn't have any space for a lot of what people are doing so that's all part of what ended up being in the book so um so was excavating that through spending time there and through also again still still djing also because i think if i'm talking about how people Interact with each other through music I think it's nice to try to make sure that I can still do it I don't think what I do is exactly what Jamaican DJs do but I feel like if my theories are bad I'm probably also going to fail <laughs> on the dance floor so it's nice that that's sort of continued to inform a lot of my work and it's also helped me do the work in very practical ways, too, to have DJ knowledge um, help me in the field and stuff like that.
0: That's beautiful. From enclosures at the dinner table Mm -hmm. all the way to, like, you know, applying it to copyrights to Jamaica, uh, particularly because of your, you were DJing. So thank you for that. That was actually, like, very rich uh, genealogy. Um, I have a, a question. I think in the intro of your book you write, and if you want to understand the conditions that enable cultural expressions to move communities towards autonomy and liberation, Jamaica popular music provides an illuminating example of a living tradition that often challenges colonial ways of looking at the world, is a little bit of what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, this living tradition is not invisible to those in power, but it's often seen the, seen by them as rude. Which, in a way it is it does not respect or abide by the terms of engagement that the state defined as proper so i really liked that idea of rude citizenship or rude way of behaving because i think it's pretty known that jamaicans have been very creative at the way that they interpret the world and they name things so it's not only how creative their music is Mm -hmm. how like you know when you look at how certain Um, genres have been developed, right? Uh, It's just like almost like a story against uh, all odds and like really making something rich and incredibly creating out of the most unexpected circumstances. And again, when we say unexpected, it's because we're again thinking to that like incredibly privileged position. but I was also thinking about, even as an ethnographer, if you can talk a little bit more about that experience of all of a sudden understanding or like trying to get through that world that seems like. From, from from what we, like, you know, from our Western perspectives, what we have come to understand as chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be as simply as, like, again, something as, like, language as well. Like you were mentioning, you have a beautiful scene in the opening of your book when you are talking about this uh, competition on TV when mm-hmm. a producer calls. You know, that beat is not original enough. And the way that he's using original is it's completely different, way that you know, copyright will think of original, Mm -hmm. meaning like you know, created, um, maybe perhaps by the first time, uh, by someone who, like, either trainer and like the producer, I think, is referring to original as something that has been tested by the 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 community by Mm -hmm. a popular crowd as like these are the beats that are known that have been successful Mm -hmm. and that is for them what is original uh even the way i was thinking of like for them dj and you know like the way that we name dj for them is like a selector Mm -hmm. and a dj would be more like a master of ceremonies or someone that is just like hyping up the crowd so Mm -hmm. i think like there's all of these very idiosyncratic and rich ways in which that they have like completely name things and Mm -hmm. try to understand the world. So if you can talk a little bit more about, like, how was that experience of, like, okay, now you arrive, you find that Jamaica is really interesting, and the Mm -hmm. like, how was any way to just embed yourself in that type of environment and navigating it?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the point about language is really really true. I mean, it's, you know, uh, there is a really... Dramatic and specific form of kind of verbal artistry that is very common in, in a lot of Jamaica, not only in the music, but mm-hmm. even in a way in everyday life. And that was another thing about living there that was really great uh, from my perspective was you got to see how much kind of how much these kinds of different verbal interactions and wordplay were everywhere. Mm-hmm. Were not only in you know in uh, the music or in people who were calling themselves performers. Uh, but also, that people would use words that are the same words that I knew but would use them in different ways, which was very, could be very exhausting um, to parse, you know, if you're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and also because I think there were quite a few times when there were sort of gaps between what people said and what they did, mm-hmm. but I felt increasingly that it wasn't appropriate for me to. Treat that as a kind of like a gotcha moment, or mm-hmm. like, a, or people are lying, or they're ignorant. Like I also don't want to treat it as like a here's my chance to educate yeah. moment. Instead, I was trying to understand. Well, what you know, what does it mean when people say this thing and then they do something very different? So, mm-hmm. for example, um, Jamaican uh, sound system operators, the people who run the the setup of yeah. the turntable speakers, and 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 uh, musical recordings of whatever form they're in now. Um, they, they recently have been organizing as to demand rights, which is very interesting because-
0: They've been trying to syndicate?
1: Yes, okay. there are there is an association of sound system operators. And they are incredibly important um, people and, and institutions within Jamaican popular music, but they are also pretty embedded in DJ culture in a way that makes it hard to enforce copyright yep. and have them function the way they have wanted to function. And so there's a way in which they just don't talk about that. <laughs> and then also there's a way in which even when the Jamaican government sort of is tr- talking a little bit about investing in culture, which a lot of countries now yeah. and over the past 10 years, especially in the, in you know places that are um, coming out from under-colonialism yeah. or developing or whatever you want to call it, there's this idea that one should invest in culture as a competitive advantage type thing. And so there's a push to do that, but they, they don't include the, um, the sound systems yeah. people in it because there isn't really a way to include them without also requiring them to pay some fees to, for copyright, which they don't have or they don't want to pay. So I have a colleague, um, uh, Dr. Erin McLeod, who is Canadian, uh, who has written about Jamaica and a bunch of other stuff. She's also a music journalist. And she was in Jamaica. I think this is in the end of the book. I think I threw this in because she was telling me about it right when I was (laughs) revising it. It was such a great story. Um, She basically was at uh, a big summit in the Jamaican government where they were talking about developing the music industry for the 21st century. And they went out and did all this research and interviewed all these people, and they mm-hmm. spent all this time with the Sound System Association. But they didn't include them. And they them. didn't include them yes, in the final report. I remember. Yeah, and it's this thing about silences, right? And like, where, what, how do you interpret them? And like, it doesn't mean that they're not important, but it means that there isn't any way to appropriately imp- uh, include them without causing other kinds of problems. And so, that's—I just think that's super. Fascinating, and also to me points to well, we should probably like they're more important than the thing that's keeping them out. I mean, yeah. sound systems have been an institution, you know, since the 1930s, really, 1930s and 40s. And without them, there would be no Jamaican popular music. So, again, any system that requires you to exclude them in order to to function is clearly not operating very sensibly in relation to the community that is coming from. So, watching the way people made claims and then also didn't talk about things was something that I had to, and still do, like try to learn a lot about. And then another way that 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 functioned was with the the concept of rude citizenship. One of the reasons that I end up using this phrase is because, I mean, I came in with a fairly, probably not very sophisticated, but fairly Mm anti-colonial, anti-capitalist mindset in which I was looking at these things, uh, these these practices as sort of anti-everything, yeah. you know, anti-colonial, anti-capitalist spaces. But, and and they are, in a, in a way, you can call them that, but I wanted to account for the fact that a lot most of the people I saw in these spaces did not themselves say, we don't want to be Jamaican,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or we don't want to win Grammys, or we don't want, like, they wanted, they said they wanted all those things. And I felt like, in a way, it would be disrespectful for me to be like, well, you say you don't. You say you want to be Jamaican, but really, what you're saying is you don't want to be Jamaican because Jamaican is co- Jamaica is colonial. Like that would. I feel like that's too much for me, yes. uh, and doesn't really respect what's happening. So it was more about how they were claiming citizenship, membership in society, but also not backing down on doing it in their own way. Yeah. And that's what I really um, was trying to encapsulate. And then it was sort of a happy coincidence that rudeness is also a big theme in Jamaican music. Mm-hmm. Like it's a long running concept and so it worked very well um so those are those are some they come out of anthropological but they're more conceptual i don't know if you want more like everyday no. stories from the field but those
0: that was and kind and, of mine. and when you were talking it feels that the fact that you know they were saying some things and then they were doing others it feels a little bit about the same thing that you were, you know we were talking about earlier of like understanding the world in very different thing so Mm -hmm. maybe the way that you know it's that is very similar to the thing of like we're using the same words but we definitely understand them to be different yeah we're under you know perhaps like for them it's like they want to be jamaican but they're never saying like that jamaican yeah and i think also um many scholars even like deb thomas who we were briefly talking at the beginning like has talked about also the particular like you know um criticism that has been towards like some forms of materialistic culture that is in popular culture in the Caribbean in Mm -hmm. dance hall and all of this but um, I think uh, her and other people have talked about how there is a certain like Never fully given in, and there's like I said, definitely critical thinking, but also in trying to partake. Also, mm-hmm. like, why not me? Why should yeah. I just refuse myself of partaking in those mm-hmm. systems as well? Um, that I think is very interesting. In my own research, I look at that too. I look at underground uh, reggaeton mm-hmm. um, uh, cultures, but anyway, this is not about me. <laughs> um, so I actually had a question about translation mm-hmm. because we were just talking about like how is for you to understand in terms of anthropo- anthropologically like what is to embed yourself and trying to discern and becoming to understand what what theories they and you know the your interlocutors are enacting and what type of like worlds mm-hmm. they're like practicing and what type of liberations are able to um, um, almost like imagine and obtain mm-hmm. whether fleeting or not. Um, even though they're not necessarily doing activism in the way that we think traditionally. But then one thing is to embed oneself and then try to translate that to, um, translate not in in terms of direct language translation, but then translate that Mm -hmm. into like a book form or Mm -hmm. like writing and how, Easy that came uh, to you. Can you talk more about your writing process? Um, Why? How do you? What do you thought about this? Is for really important for me that I put um, this is important for me that I um, leave out. I particularly like that you include uh, big chunks of your uh, of your note taking mm-hmm. during the um, during your graphic per, uh um data gathering so if you can talk a little bit more about that and how do you decide to write the book and why the different chapters
1: yeah um yeah i think a lot of the choices i made were about um accountability mm-hmm. in a way like how you know especially as someone who is probably closest to ethnography right i'm not uh, i'm not fussed about like generalizability or the kinds of things that other methods demand but I think there is a question of, well, how, you know, how can I, how do I have standing to say, to make any of the observations that I'm making? And so mm-hmm. as much as possible, I think in each of the chapters, I try to sort of show show my work so that other people can also get a sense of how it is I'm making these, these uh, judgments that mm-hmm. I'm making. So when I include these big chunks of my field notes, and it's funny because I had an interesting, I had a critique from a reviewer of the book mm-hmm. uh, about this you know, where they said, you know, you use some language in a description that's kind of charged, you know, that's kind of judgmental sounding, you know, and, you know, you, we need to be careful when we're writing about people, not to frame them in ways that are, you know, judgmental or charged. And I was like, I, I absolutely agree about that. But I was sharing my field notes so that you can see how I am as mm-hmm. a researcher, which means that I make judgments sometimes, <laughs> you know, like, I want you to see if I'm, you know, because maybe you'll see when you read my notes something that I haven't seen, or you'll say, oh, this person was really, you know, had a strong reaction to this issue. Maybe that's her particular hang-up or whatever, right? So yeah. for me, I, my response was to say, yes, I'm going to make sure I frame my field notes correctly so you understand that's what you're reading at that point. Like, that's that is my personal opinion. I'm not yeah. trying to say anything other than that's my experience in the moment of this place. All the other writing is about you know, how we make sense of that as well. Like I'm interpreting my own responses as much yeah. as anyone else's, right? So I think um, for the, that's why in the ethnographic sections there are these long, these big chunks of, um, of field notes. And then uh, in the history section, I mean, that one is really, it's just a very kind of idiosyncratic history where I'm pulling together mostly secondary sources But most of them are not talking about this copyright issue Mm -hmm. front and center. And so I'm kind of pulling the threads out of the things they've said and showing how those have a lot of implications for why it is copyright law was never enforced and couldn't have been enforced, that those authors weren't necessarily writing about. But, uh, you know, they all had much better access and many more years to write history books about Jamaica than I did. So I was like, why don't I, you know, let you know, David Katz and Lloyd Bradley and these people, like, they have funny to say here, you know, but I can kind of highlight, you know, and they did some great interviews, and I found some great quotes from them Mm -hmm. that I thought were useful for telling this story about copyright, but, you know, I I, uh, I met most, I've met most of the people of the bigger names in that at this point, and I I hope they also can say I'm representing them fairly, do you know what I mean? Like, that's part of the the dynamic and then the third section is a more of a classic kind of textual analysis yeah. um, uh, where I'm looking at this sort of musical theme uh, and again I'm just trying to show my work and say you know here are the things I mean the hardest thing there is just it's a book and I'm talking about music and you can't mm. hear it and that's super annoying it's super annoying. I was like you know if I could just play this we it would be very short. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't need like 27 pages of description of an audio
0: experience. You could just hear it right away. Um, Although you have a great quote uh, in the book, I think, when you trying to address the music and you said um, that learning about music is not only listen to the tunes but also like how is it, understanding how is it made. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you honor that. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying
1: to talk about all the parts I can talk about. And so I look at you know the historical context for these different songs and again how all of them are made in a way that just make it impossible for copyright law to be a, a like a, a thing that would occur to people it's not like people are choosing to go against it it's sort of in the in the context of creating a, a song
0: mm-hmm. there's
1: never a moment at which you're like oh and who owns this section and who owns that that's just not how that works you know if you have a you know, and that is, and I root that in also other, like, ethnomusicologists who write about, you know, improvisation and oral tradition and, mm-hmm. and how those are connected. So I think the, um, it's interesting because I've been interested in this now for, for so long, you know, really. Um, and I've pursued it through these different fields. So I was in economic history and I was in law or legal, legal anthropology and now I'm in communication. And so, yeah, a lot of the work has been translating from field to field, in a way, as well, you know, And I think that's where ethnography does does me really well because I try to stay I try to stay grounded in the data mm-hmm. as much as possible, and then I don't have to, you know that, that keeps me from wandering off into sort of sort of uh, semantics of what how yeah. different fields talk about the same thing. Um, because that's also that's something that I've learned from being an inter- interdisciplinary scholar. It's like it's not just that different fields, talk about things in different ways but some fields or some fields are really not that great at talking about this stuff yet and yes. others are and so part of me is trying to figure out where is the place where I can talk most plainly and clearly about these things that I think really matter and kind of hook it into the fields so that people from different fields can understand it you know so that's where I think on the whole the book isn't super jargony there's still jargon in there of course and like technical language but I tried to keep a lot of the um, more specialist, even scholarly language, to a minimum because I want it to speak across all these different fields and be meaningful. And so, again, also that's why I keep directing people back to the data because I'm like, whether you're a legal scholar or a historian or an anthropologist, you can all look at the the field notes. You can yeah. all look at the songs and I'll explain to you what I think is going on, but you can also look at them and maybe, you know, hopefully that will at the very least back me up. Yeah. Maybe we'll also spark something new, you know? So, so I think the, um, yeah, I I like the way you asked the question about translation because of course it isn't, it's not me translating Jamaicans for the world. Yeah. That's definitely not what I want to be doing, but it's more me translating the encounters that I had in this space and trying to share sort of where I think that could illuminate Things happening both in Jamaica and outside, so that's that's you know that means translating my own observations in a way uh, as much as anything else, and so that that yeah. was a lot of the labor of of, of the writing, um, and also what was so interesting about like going through the review process is seeing yeah. you know it was often. Most of the time I felt like it was a translation issue. (laughs) Like I was lucky not to get a lot of feedback that said like, this isn't interesting, but there was a lot of like, well, why did you do it this way? Or why didn't you do this other thing? And sometimes I was like, well, I did, but you didn't see it. And other times I was like, because that's not the field I'm in. And you know, so that was interesting for me as well.
0: Yeah. I definitely also like did, enjoyed so much the when you were interpreting almost like your own field notes, or when you were making an argument and say like you can look at you know this when I took the notes, and because there were enough time I think between them. Um, there was an interesting conversation that I felt that it was happening between you and you. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was very enriching. Um, so I, 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 wanted to ask about that because mm-hmm. I really enjoyed those those parts. Uh, but your research also are, are large. You, what, what type of frameworks um, you take and then into the classroom? Because you're also now in com, right? Yes. Yes. So.
1: Um, yeah. I think. Um, I mean, one is just. You know, I'm always interested in how people who are oppressed are sort of carving out spaces for themselves uh, and what are the tools that allow them to do that, what are the things that make that more or less likely to happen. And so whenever, when, in whatever class I'm teaching, I tend to try to have places where students can explore that kind of question, like how people in the world are making use of this thing or doing this thing and what does it allow them to do or what does it not allow them to do. Uh, also to avoid a lot of questions like, you know, I mean, like I teach media criticism. So like, you know, is this genre bad or whatever, right? Like you yes. don't want those conversations. So instead, you know, but I also feel like I don't really want to just say, or it's good. Mm-hmm. Like I want to say, what are people doing with it? What does it mean to, to be a part of this? Who is in it who is outside of it what does the industry look like you know so I'm tr- always trying to get into these kind of more material questions about culture I think um, and then also I mean I do teach like if at the graduate level like research methods mm-hmm. and um, classes where I'm also very concerned about the, the ethics of and, and practice of, of uh, knowledge making I, yeah. I mean, I do actually try to do that at all levels but It's more explicit at the graduate level.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And that is informed a lot by, you know, in a way I think I'm glad I had so long to work on this book because I think, you know, the ethics and politics of being a white middle class scholar studying Jamaica are, I mean, it's not like I solved it, you know, (laughs) but they're ongoing problems and ongoing issues. And trying to do the best I possibly could or the best I thought I could, you know, under these sort of broader institutional and social circumstances required a lot of reflection, required a lot of self-examination and dialogue and dialogue with others when they were kind enough to do it. And so I try to also model that with students, you know, of let's all work through, you know, not not like let's pick a part where everybody did it wrong, you know. But let's all work through how can we do it better next time, or you know what worked or what didn't work, and that kind of thing. And I think that practice, um, you know, in a way, those are I think also for me those were like ethnography survival skills, right? Because yeah. like when you're stuck, if you do traditional, I did much more like traditional classic anthropology ethnography of like I went out and I lived somewhere for almost a year. Um, I guess that's short for anthropology, but, you know, for, for calm, that's kind of long, I think. (laughs) So, so, you know, and you're, you know, the, one of the things that happens, it's like a classic anthropology arc, right? Is there's like the emotional crash that
0: happens like month two or three when. You're You're coming from the field and you separate yourself from the person that you became. Yeah,
1: Yeah. exactly. And you, and you're like, I don't know anything and I can't understand anything. And these people don't want to talk to me or I can't figure out how to talk to people. Right. Or I'm, you know, whatever it is and you're just left there in your own resources, and that's very, very important to be humbled in, the, in that space. But I think in order to figure out how to go on, you have to come up with some reason to keep going. And for me, it's the sort of, okay, well, okay, how can I do it a little better? Like, how can we, how can we you know, figure out what worked and what didn't work, figure out who, and part of that involves figuring out who I want to be accountable to. You know, am I, Mm -hmm. who am I trying to, I mean, please, or, you know, who am I trying to speak to? Who do I want to hear me? And, you know, having it be my committee was necessary when I was doing the dissertation, but after that, I actually had a very big choice of, like, who I want this book to be for, who I want Mm -hmm. to be hearing it, and who, you know, and how do I want it to be received by the communities that I worked with to the extent that they're interested in reading a giant book, which they may not be, but... You know, I think part of that was um, I take that into the classroom too. Of in all my classes, I try to get students to think about that too. Like not just um, how do I pro- you know produce a result or produce a piece of work, but who who am I producing it for? Like who who do I want this to be for? Who do I who am I accountable to in this moment? And I, you know, I I'm doing fewer and fewer. It, it's changed my teaching style and my uh, assessment style, the way I grade, all of mm-hmm. that because. I'm not really interested in setting up like benchmarks for the sake of benchmarks like I don't think they're very helpful at any level so um, if i if I'm forcing someone to go through the stress of like producing a thing, I want it to have meaning for them and and then they have to figure out what's meaningful <laughs> so it's a kind of another level of conversation um, and uh, but I think you know it's it's also helpful because I'm teaching uh, especially uh, a lot of first-generation college students mm-hmm. and so for a lot of them i think even more so and this i can't generalize everywhere but i did teach also at some very um expensive private schools in different places i will say that a lot of first-generation students both undergrad and grad they require that the work be meaningful <laughs> because otherwise why on earth would you be yeah, doing usually... this, like what you know to leave your your community and your space that you're from and go it has to means something. Yeah. So that conversation is actually, I think, closer to them. I actually found it harder in some ways with students for whom it wasn't such a giant leap to go to college or to go to grad school, because they were like, well, it's a thing to do. It's yeah. a thing one does. It's a thing people I know do. <laughs> you know. So I still think it should be meaningful, but sometimes it's harder to get to that conversation. So mm-hmm. for me, it's
0: been great to have. Um, or just in general, I think that the the, the ability of um Go to to school or go to college, not only because it's what everyone's doing in your environment, but it's relatively easy, and you're not um, working and then, mm-hmm. like making it to class. Um, I, I I my. When I moved uh, from Cuba to here, basically I started in community college. Like, Mm -hmm. I better like my classes because I was like working from five to nine and then taking classes at night. So you're so tired that it better grab your attention. Like, you have to make sure that. And yes, I also wanted to have a degree because I knew that that would better my options for, you know, certain kind of jobs that I was aspiring to do. But it was definitely. it, it was way easier and i definitely signed up for the classes that grab my attention when you are necessarily um, have other constraints mm-hmm. so i uh, i sympathize um a lot with that like basically make the their time well worth it not only mm-hmm. because they're getting this accreditation and going through the hoops and the benchmarks but mm-hmm. also that you're getting something meaningful out of it um dr man i have one last question because one of my favorite um um frameworks that you use in the book is actually Obika's great concept of hexalistic spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and you basically use it to localize street dances as tangible spaces of sovereignty precisely because of its exilic condition. In page 94, you write, the presence of a gully marks the physical location of a site beyond the control of elites, a site where people not bound by elite norms or behavior are in charge. In this way, it marks not a public space or a private space, but a local space, especially a space controlled by the urban poor. So I was thinking when I was reading that, whether at least in the Caribbean, I'm also Cuban, uh, so I understood very particularly well what you meant uh, there, even though I'm not from Jamaica. Um, I wonder if can sovereignty against the coloniality of being that we understand so common as the Caribbean experience can only exist in exile to be truly itself? I mean,
1: you know, I'm really grateful to like, I think actually uh, Dr. McLeod, who I mentioned earlier, is the person who introduced me to Obika Gray's work, and I read it and was immediately, like, that whole concept. I was like, this is it's the, the thing. thing. Yes, in a way, I think so. I'm not sure if I'm the, supposed to be the final arbiter, but I think it, to me, it echoes um, perhaps its pessimism <laughs> in a way, right? But uh, it, it doesn't mean that those spaces, those exilic spaces, it's not that they don't, they, they exist as part, they're still a part of the broader system, you know, the system relies on them and they, they, they can, they can make demands of the system. But I think the thing, the thing that gives them their power is that the people who are most oppressed have authority. And I, I don't see any way for that to happen within a colonial system in a way that is liberatory. Like, obviously, people are chosen to head things or run things or be represented all the time uh, as individuals or as representatives of an oppressed group, but they aren't usually given structural power, uh, and their communities are not given structural power. And so I think... I don't know if I can say what... I, you know, this is kind of where my... I like theory-generating, but I'm not a grand theory person, so I, I'm... I'm I'm wary of saying what is like ultimately totally possible or not, but I will say that I always, you know, I look at the characteristics of exilic spaces that make it possible for oppressed people to have sovereignty, and I don't see those in other spaces. And I don't know. I feel like the the lesson for me is really to look to those spaces and those communities. To try to figure out where, like, where else we can go, or society can go, Uh, because I think the, you know, I remember I was giving an earlier version of a talk about about parts of my book in uh, where was it? It was it was at some big institution. I don't think it was a university, but I think it was a conference in like a government building. And, like, we had some music and we had brought in all these artists and everybody was talking and somebody was like, well, can this be an exilic space? And I was like, no, absolutely not. Like, it's a really nice time. But, like, you know, when someone else in government decides they don't like this sort of thing, it's not going to happen. Like, it's not like we're, you know, there's no structural shift has happened. That doesn't mean that it's also not like I've had some new ideas and maybe something will grow from it. It's not to say it's, like, infertile or whatever, but... I just feel like there's a desire for people who have structural power to want to like be like we can make these things and then things will be better and I feel like that's what I'm wary of. So I I tend to feel that, uh, you know, and actually it's 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 also a struggle. It's it's a kind of an echo of a conversation I have around uh, work I'm doing now, which is on safety and nightlife, and which is a very similar kind of debate, which is that the spaces that are the most popular and desired and in some ways safe for like marginalized people in nightlife are usually very unsafe in other ways. Like Mm -hmm. for example, fire safety, Uh, right? So like warehouse parties, outdoor events, places where especially like queer and trans people of color go to like celebrate their life and relations in in dance and music, right? Those are not welcome in legal venues. And Mm -hmm. so that you go to a place that is physically unsafe is there a way to have a perfectly safe space that is funded, <laughs> right? Yeah. And welcomes in people who are the most excluded and oppressed? I would like to think so, but I, I feel like it's very hard to see how that's not that doesn't end up being another compromise with, like, visibility and control by the state. And it's not for me to say one way or the other what people yeah. are going to do. Like, I'm not judging at all. But I think it's funny because it's kind of the same discussion of, like... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because part of exile is unpleasant. Like, I don't want to romanticize, yeah. you know, the gully is not a pleasant experience to encounter. Nobody likes people in, in who live near them, don't like them. You know, they smell bad and they're, you know, unsanitary and people, they're full of garbage and stuff. But it still is the place. I mean, actually, this happens in West Philly, too. There's like, you know, there's like a West Philly Facebook group. And there's people who'll be like, yeah, we heard gunshots again, but at least it's keeping... The Slow and the gentrifiers out, mm-hmm. and I don't think anyone is happy about gunshots. But mm-hmm. nobody has figured out the, the other any other way. <laughs> not, not that that's why yeah. they're being done, but you know what I mean. No one's no. figured out a way to create this space where people who are, you know, more oppressed, more marginalized, more exploited can have a kind of sovereignty without it involving some kind of danger or exile yeah. for all concerned,
0: right? And so. Yeah. But I and, and definitely there's a downside and there's like you know uh, a risk of over-romanticizing exile but I think also the 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 upside perhaps is that um, by enacting sovereignty or being able to enact sovereignty being removed you know um, um, enough being far away enough mm-hmm. whether because you were forced to go you know mm-hmm. at that point um, it's also a remaking like able to claim sovereignty in those spaces is also a remaking of the idea of exile as a condemnation mm-hmm. um, which I'm not saying that it doesn't have an you know a downside but it was de- but it's definitely I think even like how we originally think of the term exile as like someone that gets pushed out pushed out from their country and mm-hmm. like you know they become stateless as if that is a condition for the stop of being right and the fact that you are able to create a form of being that is sustainable to you, albeit can be precarious, mm-hmm. um, I think there is a positive upside oh, to yeah. that because it's just like a, pushing back a li- at least a little bit or however possible to say like, you know, I, I'm still here, I'm mm-hmm. still, you know, I, I can still understand myself as Jamaican, I can still con- construct Jamaican culture, mm-hmm. um, I'm still a person that can go and have a good time with friends and have my relations however I uh, so choose. So... Mm-hmm. Um, It's, you know, the same thing. Like if at least I can stay in my neighborhood for longer, if the Mm -hmm. property taxes don't go up through the roof. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is uh, something to to be cherished. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And similarly, I wouldn't want to romanticize. Right. The spaces that are considered safe are places of structural intense structural violence. Right. Yeah. Something also Deb Thomas talks about. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So just because it's not visible in the moment to Mm -hmm. people in charge doesn't mean there's not ongoing structural violence happening in spaces that are
0: being safe or, or proper safe,
1: right yeah. so yeah i think absolutely right and i mean this idea of you know statelessness certainly for people who think that the that states are fundamentally oppressive then statelessness is not necessarily bad and yeah. even you know i mean there's even a long tradition for example of um you know radical jewish thought around mm-hmm. you know the the productive and resistant possibilities of an identity that's not rooted in a nation state for yeah. those that are not rooted, who don't want to be rooted in the yeah. existing nation state that's trying to claim Judaism, right? Yeah. But I think you know, you have like, and there is a resurgence of that which is really interesting as well. So I think, yeah, I think that's part of what I'm interested in is, yeah, all these ways that people are claiming and asserting sovereignty but rejecting some of these terms uh, that states say has to come with sovereignty, right? Like re- re- rejecting some of the, the relations you know, the same way like when you have You know, when you have your, like, endless argument with, like, um, somebody who's very authoritarian and they're like, well, human beings need structure or need hierarchy. And you're like, well, no, actually, that's, you know, that's not true. So I'm going to say we can have a society and not have hierarchy, right, (laughs) or something like that. That's, I think, um, part of what's happening in these spaces, that there's a rejection of some fundamental kind of ideological um, attachments to what it means to be Jamaican or to be a citizen. And I do think it's, yeah, that's kind of great and should be learned from and cherished. So,
0: definitely. Um, so, if you want to just talk a little bit more about how you envisioned, like, particular sound systems and um, uh, street dances, how are they evolving? I know, particularly, at least from my experience of my own research, that something that was already happening but got accelerated, at least with the pandemic, and I study. Um, not necessarily mainstream movements. Um, it's that there has been this growth for um, data dependency, the dependency of social media data and stream uh, uh, streaming, mm-hmm. as like if you don't get a presence, you don't get like booked for certain parties and mm-hmm. things of that sort. Um, so it has gotten um, very important, even if you're not trying to get sign up with Sony Music right. or something like that. It's just like even for um, smaller like you know, organization events or whether, like, a local influencer is going to interview you a lot of depends of, like, how much you are in the social media realm or how much followers you have. So if you can But this seems like a very individualized approach versus, like, you know, what you talk about, how artists are made or how some music is made. That is, at least in street dances, it's, like, a more collective effort, right? Mm -hmm. Like, DJs had, like, way more influence over, you know, like, Um, how to help uh, get get some like musics known I mean I'm obviously over generalizing here mm-hmm. but I was thinking a lot when you were describing certain moments at street park dances in which the DJ reads the crowd and knows how to even adapt the songs to it mm-hmm. and that's not something that the musician when they uh, made the recording necessarily right. intended mm-hmm. but that's something that the DJ at this point is also doing mm-hmm. um, uh, with their music along based on the crowd so th- it felt very um, that there was something intrinsi- intrinsically very communal about how, um, um, you know, music was made and passed and and was viewed as successful versus like how it seems that the industry is going now. So if you can talk about how sound systems in your view, I know you're no longer there in the field um, and street dances. How do you think they are just like going? Do you think that they're gonna endure? Um, Are they adapting and changing because of like this new turn?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I haven't been there recently enough Mm -hmm. to say what it's like there now. I will say first that one thing that's interesting is, in a way, a lot of how Jamaicans in the music scene, in my experience, functioned. Uh, was very similar to this social media world now, but it wasn't social media. But the idea that you had to be in circulation, you had to be out, you had to be about, you had to be known, and that any mention was good mention. I mean, that's, you know, when you don't have copyright enforcement, instead you have circulation, you know, and you get your name or your catchphrase or your particular vocal sound, you Mm -hmm. know, signature circulating you know, in a way that kind of prefigures what we now have. And I think for me, I'm not sure if there's a difference in scale or if it's more or less communal, but it's more that the communities in which the, the culture is circulating that you need to then get your sort of circulatory power from, it is more diffuse. And it's just, you know, in general, more white supremacist. It's not grounded in
0: mm-hmm.
1: poor Jamaican social scenes. It's global or
0: mm-hmm.
1: algorithmically derived, which yeah. is a whole other issue, and I do, I have done a little bit of work on that, on al- algorithms and culture, although I think Nick Seaver just came out with a book, like, today or, like, this week about music and algorithms and culture, mm-hmm. which I haven't read, but, but I'm very no, I'm curious to. I'm going to look for yeah. But I was part of some discussions about about this as well, about the ways that now, you know, circulation, uh, you know, what pops up on your stream mm-hmm. or whatever, is, is often algorithmically developed, and algorithms, of course, are not neutral either. Mm. And they have cultural assumptions built into them that are the cultural assumptions of the people who built the algorithms or the cultural assumptions of the data set that it was trained on and all that kind of thing. So I think I'm curious to know, I mean, I think it seems to me like there's there's likely to have been a loss of some of that local authority because of the way it's so much easier to turn, your, turn yourself towards a global or to an internet yeah. audience. At the same time, people are often very good at, like, re-sort of capturing, turning things back around into local practices, so I would be curious to see how people are, are negotiating that. Um, I do think there has also been a resurgence of interest uh, in Jamaican popular music by the Jamaican government and globally. You know, you have the rise of new artists like Coffee and mm-hmm. who are amazing, yeah. Um but there is an, an interesting way in which, that seems quite new to me, there's a lot more middle-class Jamaicans involved now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they are using the language of resistance and rebellion and revolution, uh, which is fine. I mean, I, it's a nice language to use, but it's interesting because it doesn't quite mean the same thing when it's coming from people who are well off. Yeah. I think that it would when it's coming from people who are really uh, uh, poor. This is just my personal... Yeah, take on it and so I'm curious because in the past I would say middle and upper class Jamaicans would not have felt comfortable using that language or associating themselves with that kind of militancy very often and it mm-hmm. seems like it's become safer for them to do that
0: and um, that kind of militancy also
1: but militancy in pose, in not, pose. they're not militant in action as far as yeah. I can
0: tell <laughs> also wasn't necessarily overlap with um, more commercial. Which mm-hmm. like I'm thinking someone like Coffee whom I adore, like has a song like Ragamuffin mm-hmm. that is very like engaged in like, you know, politics of mm-hmm. like poor working class Jamaicans mm-hmm. and he's denouncing like violence and yeah. like, you know, unemployed youth and all of that. But then it has like more like commercial or like, you know, mm-hmm. something like West Indies, for example. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, this, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um
1: yeah, and as, I can't say, like, with one artist, I'm, no, you know, yeah. one artist isn't, but it's more, I did see that trend the last time I was there, where there were, I saw a lot more, like, it's something that's familiar to me from the US, because obviously, like, middle class and upper class people in the US are quite comfortable kind of becoming bohemian, and mm-hmm. like, and it's partly to do with, like, you can't lose respectability as a white person so easily, so you can kind of wear holes in your clothes and yeah. hang out in scruffy areas and you're safe. Jamaica wasn't like that when I was there so much. People were, there was much more social distance between, um, in the music scene too, between, and I write about it a bit, like these upper class or middle class artists who come into the music scene and actually people are sort of hostile to them or, you know, and they don't have such an easy time. That's changing and I'm I'm not sure what that means exactly, but it doesn't, it's not automatically changing uh, how poor people have access to resources, so... In a way, it seems like something else is happening, but um, but I don't really know about the sound systems because the sound system organization thing is new. The association is new, and it's very mm-hmm. interesting. I, and I think they're making they're angling for some like cultural heritage recognition, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, but again, what does what do those things mean when yeah. you become visible in that way, and then you have to be accountable in that way, and you have to get on a registry, and you have to, you know.
0: Uh, show your yeah. show your re- you know your funding and all of that kind of stuff. There's going to be a negotiation there in some yeah. things. Yeah,
1: and all and you know what I saw because I actually I did um, also uh, more recently a bit of fieldwork in Barranquilla, Colombia, mm-hmm. and it was really dramatic there. It was right before the pandemic, where the the local government was was trying to turn um, La Cultura Picotera, the mm-hmm. sound system culture there. Mm-hmm into a cultural
0: draw, yeah. for, you know. For tourism. For tourism.
1: Yeah. And the thing was, they were picking and choosing who could be a part of that, and the people who could be a part of it were the ones who were the most able to negotiate the bureaucracy and go to the meetings. And they were basically, there. there's become a wave of kind of middle-class intermediaries of this culture who were not the people who originally, you know, created it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even among the people who originally created it, it seems to me that the Afro-Colombian people are not included at all, and some of the mestizo poor Colombian people are included, but the Afro-Colombians don't seem to almost ever be included in these government initiatives at all. So there's like layers and layers of how you become visible and marketable and appropriate, and I'm just I don't know if that's going to um, take on a different form in Jamaica because in a way Jamaicans have or have skipped the middleman of the Jamaican government entirely and gone to the global market from the beginning, so. Uh, it might be more complicated than
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> but no, thank you. And and thank you for like talking about your book, uh, your research, even like how do you translate it to the classroom, like your writing uh, process and experience. It was really a privilege to hear from it, uh, from the first person. No,
1: it's my pleasure. Um,
0: and um, yeah, thank you again for coming today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to our email, cargc@asc.upenn.edu, or follow us on Twitter. Until next time.